Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. We are still suffering through this quagmire of an existence with the Delta strain of COVID-19 on the rampage. Vaccinations are clearly proving to be a remarkable shield to hospitalizations and deaths, but 99% of the hospitalizations are occurring in the unvaccinated. So unfortunately, the message is really still not being well received by enough people. Today's podcast will focus on an issue almost as frightening as dying from COVID-19, and that's living with the long-haul symptoms of COVID-19. In my medical practice, the only thing that has prepared me to care and help these patients is my experience treating chronic fatigue syndrome for over two decades. These two syndromes have very similar in their presentation and the suffering that they impose on the afflicted patients. My guest today, Dr. Amy Prohl, is a microbiology researcher at the PolyBio Research Foundation, and she has been studying and has published numerous articles on chronic fatigue syndrome, also called myalgic encephalitis, and is now applying her expertise to studying long-haul COVID patients as well. Dr. Prohl has focused on the reactivation of viruses as a possible explanation for these symptoms in both of these conditions. So it's with great pleasure and interest for myself that I welcome Dr. Amy Prohl to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay. So I always like to start out with a little background on my guests because I'm always fascinated with how people get to where they are. And I was looking at your bio and I saw that you studied biology at Georgetown University. And then you went to Australia for mm-hmm. your PhD in microbiology. So my first question is, why did you go, as the Aussies say, down under to get your advanced degree in microbiology? It actually just happened to be the case that there was a mentor there who was friends with one of the researchers I already worked with. Mm. And they were really open to some of the existing actually papers or talks I'd already given. And they were very welcoming. And I thought it was a good program. And I thought it was cool too. Yeah, be abroad. It is. I trained in in Israel, you know, for my medical studies and, you know, being in another country and especially in, in, you know, with great scientists and physicians, in so many ways, it was a great experience for myself. I mean, of course, you can get great training here in the United States, but it brings like a little added perspective. So I I would, yeah, I was kind of interested. And I know it's interesting. I think in PhDs, it's really interesting. It's like who your mentors and advisors are, are so critical as they are in every field. But especially now when you're really, you know, you're working with somebody so closely that if you get a great opportunity, wherever it is in the world, it's, it's obviously worthwhile to take advantage of. All right. And we're going to go into one other sort of background question. I, you know, I saw and it was really interesting to me that you've been doing research on chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic encephalitis for such a long time. And especially, and I say this, especially when so many other institutions had given up. I mean, even the NIH, I think it was Steven Strauss who was looking at, you know, I still remember this. He was, you know, pursuing about whether Epstein-Barr is involved with chronic fatigue. And, and so many researchers said, you know what, this is a dead end for my career or whatever. But you actually 
clearly from your papers, continue to work and seek some answers. So I'm just curious why you persisted in that. Yeah, well, that goes into my personal story. I might as well describe that. So I actually got diagnosed with ME-CFS myself in 2004. So that's part of the whole way that I began to study the condition. So I was a college student at Georgetown University. And in fact, there I had an amazing mentor already. I was a pre-med student at the time. Um, His name was Professor Douglas Eagles. And, you know, I, when I was young, I got a lot of infections as a child. I don't know why I was vaccinated for with MMR, but I got measles, mumps, and rubella on three separate occasions and was hospitalized for them each time. And I have also got scarlet fever, a really bad case of pneumonia. It was, it was very strange. It was a a slew between the ages of three and five of really severe, almost Mm -hmm. encephalitic type uh, conditions. And I have a fraternal twin sister and she didn't get any of those. And then after that, I was fine. I saw saw it seemed. I was really a healthy kid and very athletic through high school, you know, tennis team captain and all kinds of stuff. No problem. Then when I was at college at Georgetown, I started to feel a little strange, had trouble sleeping, had headaches. But every time I went to the student health center, they just told me, you're fine. I mean, it got a little okay. ridiculous. The classic story of MECFS, where after a while, I, you know, really tried to up it and say, I really don't feel well. And it, I did get, you know, you're anxious, you know, your pre-med courses are too hard for you, which of course they were not. I was doing just fine. And <laughs> the kind of stuff where I was referred to psychiatric care, if that. And then the last year of college in 2004, for me, at the very end, I got mono Epstein-Barr virus infection. And that really put me over the edge. And I absolutely tanked so badly. So I went to what really could be described as better. I've just lost all function, could hardly speak, was only able to be in a bed, could not tolerate almost any light, any sound, anything. So I was very ill. (laughs) And then from there, you know, over time, I, and that's part of my story. I began to think, well, did these infections that I've sustained as a child or the obscene bar that put me over the edge do they matter? It seems like that would matter in my case. I don't yes, know what else, yes. what else happened to me. And so even from my bed to the extent that I could, I began to, to look into microbiology and just to look at the impact of, of chronic infection. I'll be honest, I was a little, you could say biased at the time. I felt like I had such ongoing flu-like symptoms and so many continued symptoms. that I knew Epstein-Barr virus, for example, was a persistent virus because herpes virus is by definition, do not clear. So I was really interested early on in in persistent infection and whether in some sort of simple scenario, maybe the viruses that had contributed to my condition to my body had not fully cleared. And so in that capacity, I began to use totally experimental protocols, antiviral drugs and a treatment that seeks to stimulate the immune system, pulsed antibiotics in case there could be a bacterial component. I did this all experimentally and based off some protocols you know, that were out there. Interestingly, you mentioned Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum before that you interviewed separately for a podcast and he was my first doctor. Really? Yeah, I was his patient. Well, he went went through it himself too. So look, you know, I always like to throw this line out Mm -hmm. when I'm talking to the public uh, and they smile. And I take it from Bernie Siegel, the Yale surgeon, you know, humanistic doctor, when he said, let me sure I get this quote right. He said, doctors are the tourists of the land, but the patients are the natives. You know, they know the lay of the land, you know, and you've been there and you've walked the walk. Who knows it better than you, yeah. you know, what you're experiencing and feeling. So, yes. Right. So even Dr. Tuttlebaum was one of the people who kind of helped me in these early stages. And I did begin mm. to slowly improve. 
I published a paper on one of the treatments that I use. It's difficult because it, it makes you feel worse before you feel better. Right. It involves Herxheimer, which is a reaction in which if, right. if pathogen is targeted, there's a battle between the immune response and the organism. So it's a difficult right. treatment, but it, it did help in my case. So I tried to put that out there, put a case series out there. And beyond that, then as I started to improve, I became more and more interested in the phenomenon. And as part of what I was doing is I reached out to a lot of researchers at the time who were doing cool work on persistent infection. And in fact, researchers who had even really done good work on that topic in the 60s and 70s, for example, there was a researcher named Gerald Deming, who was an emeritus professor at Tulane. And he has these incredible, they, they just sit there in some sense, but there's incredible papers. For example, one called Bacterial Persistence and Expression and Disease, which just goes into so much work in which, granted, the tools that they had in the 60s and 70s for finding organisms and tissue were not perfect. But even yeah. then, if they really looked, if they got tissue samples from patients at autopsy, you know, they were seeking to really find organism in patients. They were finding it and there were beautiful pictures, beautiful diagrams. So for example, I sought him out. We met over Skype. He taught me some of his methods, some of his thinking. And I, I grew from those, I'm going to call them old school researchers. And then yes. I was given the opportunity from my old mentor, Georgetown, to visit the J. Craig Venner Institute that was running one of the earliest programs on prokaryotic sequencing. So we were moving into this new era, which is still mm. part of what my work focuses on, in which before you know the 2000s, most of the microbiology and virology work done was with staining, was with culturing and petri dishes, which there's still great work out there. But we right. now understand that that culturing, for example, a bacterial pathogen in the petri dish, really only a fraction of organisms capable of persisting in the human body will be identified in that fashion. Some just don't grow. Many right. just don't right. grow in a petri dish. So we were right. missing a lot of organism. What yeah. happened is around the 2000s, the human genome was starting to be sequenced. That was Craig Venner who sequenced the first yes. human genome. And that was using computer-based technologies where in simple mm. terms, you pull the genetic material out of a sample and then you know the, the sequence of a virus or bacterial pathogen, you know it's genetic sequence and the right. computer can go through that the base pairs of that and match those to pathogens in an organism mm. in a sample. Those tools revolutionized our ability to find organism in the human body. Well, you know, just to jump ahead also, I can't wait till this test is more commercially available. I read about it. I can't believe, it. I think it's coming out of California, mm -hmm. but it, we're essentially, you know, one of the most difficult things as a doctor, especially in a hospital, is you have a patient that comes in acutely sick, doing blood cultures, you're sending off for antibodies for different viruses. But apparently, I think there's this test, I'm not sure again, if it's based on DNA sequencing or whatever, but they, they basically could tell you the pathogen based on the DNA sequence, right? I forgot the name of the test, but so it's almost like the doctors don't have to be such a genius, you know, infectious disease, super specialist to say, oh yes, this is brucellosis or some unusual pathogen that would respond to an antibiotic if it wasn't overlooked. Uh, am I right on that? 
I'm not sure. There is a company, Curious, yeah. who I have great respect for. It was partially founded by Stephen Quake, and mm. it does. It uses a, a type of cell-free DNA sequencing, which is a, a method to identify. So funny. I have his his book here on, on, on Corona. He's, like, oh, yeah. he's a smart guy. He's smart. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, And that's yeah. great. It is still, I'm going to say, a challenge for clinicians. And this is one of the things that we face in research as well. Because yeah. what I've come to realize over time in most researchers who study persistent pathogens, especially those that get involved in severe cases of chronic disease, the severe MECFS cases, they don't necessarily persist in the blood or even in body fluids because that's where the immune system is most robust and most likely to recognize them. So in the acute stage of disease, the early stages, they may be in the blood. And right. so, for example, when you're testing, especially for something, let's say Borrelian Lyme disease, acute Lyme in the testing is far from perfect. But the earlier you test, the more likely you're likely to find the organism right. there. Over time, right. though, it can be difficult because most paths, almost all of them, have evolved mechanisms to, in, in simple terms, to hide. That's a great point. Yeah. You know, I want to get into some of this with you because, you know, you are, you're hitting so many important things. And and what frustrates doctors and patients, you know, especially Lyme, which I wasn't even playing. I don't know if we'd have time, but I want to get into that maybe later on. Mm -hmm. I like to move on to something because I want to really understand this. And again, my background when I did my training was infectious disease, immunology, and allergy. So, and I was always fascinated with infectious disease. It's probably what drove me into medicine. But I want to understand something that I've always grappled with. It's obviously common for all of us to be exposed to viruses. And Epstein-Barr, again, is one of them. I mean, there are people who don't even know that they have been infected with Epstein-Barr, you know, so, so many people have had exposure and have, if we do blood testing, have antibodies, you know, IgG antibodies, obviously herpes simplex, common cold sores. It's common. You know, a lot of people may never have any manifestations like the sores, other people are prone to them. And of course, the one that causes more concerns as well before COVID and everything was like herpes zoster, you know, mm -hmm. the, the chicken pox virus. Now, I wonder if you could explain to me, because I, as I said, this is what I've grappled with. How does a virus stay, quote, alive in, in uh, dormant cells, whether it's neurons or, or whatever the tissue? When I, I guess I always picture viruses, obviously like COVID, that what's the best word? It's like parasitic almost in a sense. It, it has to infect new cells to stay alive. Is it just this class of viruses? Just so our listeners should know, like uh, Epstein-Barr is in the herpes virus class of viruses. Is it, I mean, are, are there other ones? But what is, how does a virus stay alive in tissue if it's not infecting other cells? Yeah, that's a good question. And you're right. And I think that's one of, first of all, one of the, the fact that more than 90% of the human population harbors a herpes virus. So obviously right. there are people who appear healthy and have these viruses. So the question then becomes, you know, when we start to notice that they're potentially active in patients with chronic disease, what's going on there? And so first of all, that brings us to the first major consideration, which is in a lot of diseases, and this has happened in MECFS as well, Say people say, oh, well, a person with uh, MECFS has Epstein-Barr virus, but so does that healthy person. So it must not matter. And that is a dumb right. argument because right. it really, the question that we need to be asking is what is the virus doing? What is it mm -hmm. doing? And what viruses often do is they, or they do, they express proteins and this happens when they're more active. So, you know, in simple terms, and this goes to your question about virus persistence, viruses can remain often in an infected cell and they don't 
replicate very much. They're in a dormant or a latent form. And the way that that occurs is that because they're kept in check by the immune system. But they survive in the cell because right. like they're intracellular. They're inside the cell. Mm-hmm. They're not, you know, like bacteria floating around in the blood. They can in tissue of the bloodstream. So let's just say, for example, with hepatitis mm-hmm. or whatever. So that hepatitis B or C or whatever it is too, is just living in that liver cell, just hanging out. I mean, they can survive the RNA or DNA, whatever the cause of the viral disease, it just sits there. Okay. Enough. Yeah. There can be, in some cases, the intracellular- It sort of coexists with the, sort of like a symbiotic relationship, I guess. I mean, that it's not- causing a problem, but it's just like kind of sitting there on the sidelines, you know, like a bystander. Right. It's in the cell. And what some of the viruses do as well is they'll modulate the gene expression of the cell and they'll actually keep the cell from undergoing apoptosis, which is a form of cell death. So sometimes they'll actually extend the life of the cell they live in to make it a more compatible home. So there's, there's Mm. tactics that these viruses use to be able to sort of once they get inside a you know well-located immune cell or a cell, it can be a neuron as well, somewhere in the body, they can try to prevent that cell from dying as quickly. They can just basically, in simple terms, they can just hang out. Even then, though, out. some okay. latent mm-hmm. virus, and when latent is when they're most controlled, even then sometimes express protein a bit. Right. They're there, but the immune system knows that they're there. So whether right. the immune system starts to go into attack mode or say, okay, I'll leave you alone right now. You're not right. causing enough irritation to me to, to keep you in check or do right. something. Right, And the immune system is actively containing the virus as well. So this is one of the things is if a person has a robust enough immune response, for example, we express interferons. They're a type of cytokine and they're the most right. antiviral cytokine that we have. So they target viruses in a number of ways. And those right. interferons help keep herpes viruses in latency. In other words, as long as those are being expressed by the immune system, it's difficult for a herpes virus to activate more in the cell that it's in because the interferon will knock it back down. You know, what's interesting. I'm going to tell you again from my mm-hmm. clinical experience. I trained in my residency and then my fellowship in the late 1980s, early 1990s during the AIDS epidemic. And I'll never forget, you know, as a resident, you're mostly doing, yeah. you know, you're, you're giving medications, doing bloods, you know, you're not supposed to be the thinker, mm-hmm. but I couldn't help but thinking to myself at that time, because it fascinated me, where were these patients with AIDS catching toxoplasmosis? Where were they catching cytomegalovirus? And it wasn't really until years later it dawned on me that these patients harbored these viruses, right? They weren't catching it from somebody else. It was just that their T cell counts were so low that essentially their immune system said surrender and these viruses rose and all of a sudden caused, quote, these opportunistic infections. But again, that was a pretty dramatic example of the immune system taking a major hit. It's dramatic, but it's important because really that there's a similar trend in a lot of chronic diseases where, and for example, not, okay, not, that's everyone, what I understand. not everyone harbors toxoplasma, but actually it's fairly, you know, it's not mentioned, but yeah, well, 11% cats, or you know, have, more of the U.S. population. Well, harbors if you have a cat, exactly. you know, you're, you probably have some toxo. Yeah. Toxoplasma, which enters the central nerve, which which persists yes. in the brain in the central nervous system. Right, system. I know. Like, or, or when I used to say yeah. cryptococcus again, I'm I'm throwing these names out to the right. listeners, but these were unusual causes of like meningitis. Mm-hmm. But we were seeing this on a regular basis. There was no way that all these patients were gathering and infecting each other with 
Cryptococcus. Yes. It, can't, it couldn't be. And, and honestly, another consideration is that a lot of these pathogens are passed from mother to child in the womb, right? So yes. they're inherited. Yeah, yeah. So you end yeah. up, you know, you can just be born with CMB. You can be born with virus that is inherited in the right. womb, which is a consideration. And I do personally think, I, I wonder, I'm not sure. I think people may harbor more of these pathogens than in previous decades, just because, you know, a global lifestyle does subject people. You know, you yes. travel to one yes. country, you get... Right. pick up a right. parasite over there, you interact with someone and you get a herpes virus, you know, we, we don't live locally. And so there is potentially more chance for people to be getting some of these kind of growing a somewhat a pathogen load that can be exactly problematic under conditions in which the immune system struggles. And that's one okay. of the things that's similar to HIV AIDS is that in these diseases and even in MECFS, one of the, the trends we look at is you may have one infectious pathogen, for example, let's say Epstein-Barr virus, and it might not be a problem yet, but let's say it's able to express one or two proteins. Sometimes those proteins can interfere with the immune response. So every mm. virus, the herpes viruses knock down CD4 T cell counts, CD8, depending mm. on their activity, mm -hmm. you may, the immune system may become somewhat more slowed because you have that one pathogen. Now, if you get another infection, it might make it a little easier for that to stick around. For example, an enterovirus, which is another pathogen that's really implicated in the MECFS disease process. That virus mm -hmm. has been found in gut reservoir samples from patients, even in two brain autopsy studies from patients with MECFS directly in the brain and the brainstem. Mm. So each virus or pathogen that a person acquires can stifle the immune system in a way that makes it somewhat easier for each of the different hits to actually begin to cause more problems, a little like a snowball rolling down a hill where maybe you have the first thing and you are right, but as you accumulate more and the immune system becomes more, you know, weighed down each of the organisms. And of course, those, you can factor hits in that are not just direct infections. For example, it's a person's exposed to mold and they're, you know, they inhale, they you know become populated with mycotoxin or they have a really stressful event or they have an injury. All of that, anything else that's compromising the immune system that's you know debilitating it can feed into that picture in which the pathogens begin to act more and express more protein, become more virulent and collectively add up to drive symptoms. Let me ask you this too. What, you know, a lot of times too with viral infections, we tend to think of the tissue that it targets, you know, with human papillomavirus, HPV, it obviously could be the back of the throat or in women, the cervical area, hepatitis, as the name lets us know, it affects the hepatocytes, the liver. Epstein-Barr seems to be sort of a general thing. Is that because it affects the bone marrow or what? I mean, it doesn't seem to have like a specific, or maybe the spleen, but it doesn't really seem to have an organ. It doesn't. Epstein-Barr virus seems capable of persisting in most human tissue types. There's a team in Japan really? that actually collected tissue from healthy patients at autopsy. And so these were patients who died from accidents or events that were not necessarily chronic disease. And even in their healthy tissue that they harvested, I'd have to look at the paper, but you can see they're, they're looking at of ovary, of thyroid, blood vessel wall. Every, so it's everywhere. And EBV is in, in is significant number of, of those uh, tissues. And these are healthy individuals. So it, does, it mm. seems capable of infecting a wide range of tissue types. Yeah. There is no test or maybe, you know, from some of the work you've done that helps us get an idea of like sort of an immune threshold you know, whether it's either an increased viral load or lower immunity as with AIDS or something else where we're looking at CD4, CD8 cells, stuff like that too. Is there anything that you've uncovered from your work that would 
help a clinician be tipped off saying, hmm, something's going on here. Yeah, it's a tough one because a lot of what's happening in MECFS is probably not happening in the blood. That's one of the biggest problems. With okay. There's actually just a conference today on MECFS. It was a big trend, which is that the pathogens, if they are persistent, impact the central nervous system the most. That's the most likely scenario. And there's data suggesting that, especially for enterovirus. And so what mm. we're looking at, in fact, the herpes viruses are neurotrophic pathogens, which means that they infect nerve preferentially and their active life cycle requires movement through nerve. So we, for example, are interested. I work with a researcher, Michael Van Elzeker at Harvard MGH, and he wrote a paper several years ago, for example, that the vagus nerve which is a very important mm. nerve. Yes, I, I interviewed body. Kevin Tracy yes. from Northwell. He's he's fantastic. Amazing. Yeah. Yes. So we he actually hypothesized that in some patients with MECFS, the vagus nerve could be directly infected. We we don't. In other mm. words, the nervous system may be yeah. infected, and we know, for example, that often patients can have gut reservoir of enterovirus, and then vagus may be a conduit by which a neurotrophic pathogen can reach the brain or central nervous system. So. There's, we're very interested in, it doesn't, it doesn't have wow. to be. No, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's the other question I was about to ask you, I'm jumping around a little bit, but like then me CSF, you know, you just always wonder besides fatigue, like why these patients complain of brain fog as we'll get to with COVID, yeah. like why? And I guess you're sort of starting to answer that because this is directly affecting the brain cells. Oh. I mean, it's the type of tissue inflammation going on there. I mean, it's the biggest thing that people complain about, you know, aside from the fatigue, they're like, even if I'm laying in bed, I can't concentrate. I can't even do remote work. You know, did you experience that? If you don't mind my asking that yourself, yes, you no, did. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I remember being in class in, in one of my pre-med classes and the writing on the board just turned to gibberish. It's I've been there. It's really scary mm. and it's really disorienting. But yeah. What we mm. look at is what we're interested in. Of course, we need, we're doing more research on this. This is all part of, we, we started a nonprofit called Polybio Research Foundation and we were slowly working on a research program that goes in this direction. But we're very interested in the dorsal activity of the dorsal brainstem in patients with MECFS and mm. also in, with long COVID because the dorsal brainstem contains nuclei that control, first of all, what's called the sickness behavior response. And so what that is, is that the vagus nerve, again, branches throughout most of the trunk organs of the body and oh, it yeah. has it's everywhere. everywhere, these mm -hmm. chemoreceptors that sense inflammation. And that can be inflammation from an ongoing infection, from you know gut microbiome issues from, and whatnot. And as long as there's a pro-inflammatory environment, it will convey that to the dorsal brainstem, this area of the brain. And what that does is that signaling causes you to feel sick. It causes the feelings of sickness, of malaise. And that's an evolutionary mm. response to say, that's why, for example, when you get uh, COVID and it's in your lung, let's say, Vegas picks it up. That's why you go, you feel sick. You feel fluey. The virus doesn't necessarily have to be there, but the Vegas is saying this sickness mm. response is important. So we- Yes, and changes your temperature yeah, exactly. and your pulse and all of that mm -hmm. stuff, right? To, to get in a more like recovery mode. Don't, you know- Yeah. Don't push too hard. So if you still have infection, whether it's in the periphery or other issues, you can, that circuit doesn't stop. That continual feeling mm. of sickness and malaise continues. And the dorsal mm. brainstem mm. that has that, where the vagus innervates, also has a nuclei that, that are really important for autonomic nervous system functioning and other nuclei for pain and nausea. So there's this small area that over where these important nuclei control symptoms that are the primary symptoms of MECFS and, and actually long COVID as well, autonomic dysfunction, sickness behavior, response, malaise, pain. And so we're interested in 
the vagus to dorsal brainstem circuitry and what can activate that. And what also matters is in that area of the brainstem, it's dense with microglial cells. You know, it's just so interesting you're saying all this because when I have interviewed Kevin Tracy like about two years ago, I know he's very involved with COVID mm-hmm. now because he's also like a cytokine expert. But, you know, what, what was one of the most fascinating things was that, you know, he was dealing his research. Uh, he developed this electrical stimulation unit to help people with autoimmune disease, which is fascinating. But the thing was, was that, you know, in a lot of these autoimmune diseases too, besides the horrific joint pain and everything, they just feel so fatigued. Right. I mean, it's just sometimes the initial complaint. So I, I do agree with you that the vagal nerve, it's interesting, could be one of the, the Trojan horses of this whole illness. Do you think that's one of the things that the infections and whatnot end up stimulating and it becomes part of the disease process? Because, you know, as you mentioned before, we could go back to Epstein-Barr virus as an example. Epstein-Barr virus drives cancers. So in some cases you can have, it's, mm. it's an oncogenic virus, you know, Google it. Epstein-Barr virus can absolutely drive a tumor. Lymphomas, exactly. right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. the question is, why is it doing what it's doing in a particular patient? Why is it driving cancer in one person and perhaps other symptoms in someone else? And it, that depends, mm. your human genetics play into that. All of us have different human genes, human variants that also affect what pathways viruses can exploit and better take advantage of. But we do think that in MECFS, the viruses are probably stimulating this sort of vagus to dorsal brainstem circuitry. And that's part of why you mm. get some of the autonomic and mm. sickness. Mm. Doesn't also viruses get into our get into our DNA. I mean, you know, when you get an infection, I mean, the right, that's like, I think what they're finding and stuff like that too. I mean, so, you know, it's probably some of the nonsense, what they call it, I guess, areas of the uh, genome, whatever, are probably infections that people had hundreds, thousands of years ago. And just, you know, it's part of the thing, you know. Those, I think you're referring to human endogenous retroviruses and that's fascinating. And we, you know, we evolved with retroviruses that incorporated into our genomes over time. This is over the course of yeah. billions of years. And for a long yeah. time, those, those incorporated retroviruses, they're, they're part of our genomes now, technically. So they're like, oh, people are like, oh, then it's not a problem. But right. it actually mm. may be the case that they can activate and act more like the retroviruses they once were, especially if there are other infectious or inflammatory insults that sort of bring them so yeah. that's that's a big topic right now in lupus and other conditions yeah. is is kind of whether yeah. that so yeah because the reason being like when you quote say hereditary why is it being why is it in families and stuff like that too and of course we say genetics but then you start looking at you know anyway that's yeah. it, that's another whole fast area I'm going to ask you a clinical question I know you're really not a clinician you're a researcher but you know what I find also and I, and I had to revisit this myself. Because patients will always come in, you know, I see chronic fatigue mm-hmm. patients in my practice. I've been doing this over 20 years. They're like, I have Epstein-Barr. Mm-hmm. I have Epstein-Barr, you know, and then I'll sometimes look at the bloods and I'm like, well, you just have exposure like everybody else. And what I found to be a really great paper was in the same article of the Wall Street Journal that I found your name. Uh, they had David Hurley and I guess Jeffrey Gold published a paper on, regarding covid mm-hmm associated with Epstein-Barr reactivation. So I wanted to ask you if you're comfortable with this. Uh, I just want to make sure I'm getting this right. You know, when I order routine bloods to find out a patient with chronic fatigue, I'm getting the Epstein-Barr, you know, they they usually give you a panel, the viral caps at IgG, which just indicates someone's been exposed at some point, right? We don't know when, but they've had some exposure. Mm -hmm. Epstein-Barr virus caps at IgM, which... I don't know. It's like an antigen and the antibody or something, I guess, because it's capsid. 
But that's that's also called, I think, sometimes VCA IgM. Is that correct? Right. Are you familiar with that? Okay. Yeah. And that would either indicate, obviously, an acute infection mm-hmm. or, well, actually, they're saying that can cure just an acute infection. So that's not a reactivated infection. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. I'm actually not totally sure how to interpret the clinical okay. test very well, but I do okay. know that if you see IgM, that you probably are looking at a virus that the Epstein-Barr that's more doing more than than if it yeah. was. Yeah, because yeah. what, what Gold said in his article, I guess this is the mm-hmm. thing I want to make sure that, that again, that we're going to get to the COVID in a few minutes, that has to do about reactivation is that when they see the, the viral capsid antigen IgM, and they see the early, it's a kind of a deceiving term, the early antigen D, mm-hmm. IgG, and if they get serum EBV DNA, which I've never seen on blood tests that, you know, that I order panels, then they're saying there's reactivation. Yeah. Because as, as I said, you know, this gets way, you know, you have this whole spectrum of patients coming in saying, I have chronic fatigue, I have chronic fatigue and I have EBV, you know, and I, you know, like anything, if I was evaluating a patient with hepatitis, I really want to know, know, is that, you know, because I... Chronic fatigue, and I tell this to patients, and we've talked about this in my other podcast, you know, with Sarah Myhill mm-hmm. and and Jacob Teitelbaum. I mean, it's it's a syndrome, okay. meaning a whole bunch of conditions run together, but there are probably people that it's infectious. There are probably other people, it could be endocrine, or some people are really autoimmune. I mean, it's part of my detective mm-hmm. work, but I do treat people a little bit differently depending on what I think they're underlying. I mean, if I if I had heard a patient like you. I would have focused more on the infectious aspect yeah. and boosting your immunity. I, in fact, I use gamma globulin for patients and have had some nice success with that. So one of the thoughts to just in, in all your work, and again, maybe, you know, it's not what you've really focused on, but, you know, they've been the people who say ME-CSF is mitochondrial dysfunction. And there's also a doctor in Berlin, Dr. Carmen Schäberbergen, I think I'm just saying she's in Berlin. She believes it's autoimmune and she's found some autoantibodies. What's your, if you were in a debate, if I had you on a panel with them, what's, you know, you're going to make your case versus theirs or, you know, or it could be both. I think, and I've had a couple of conversations with other researchers in the MECFS and long COVID communities. And one thing that we need to understand when the autoantibodies, which is what most of these teams are picking up on to deem the condition purely autoimmune. You have yes. to move into a paradigm now in which the human body is understood to not be sterile. And I I mean, not sterile by, by huge, we're talking trillions of organisms in the human gut alone. Then there are bacteriophage, which are viruses that infect bacteria. There are 10 times right. more of those bacteriophages than there are bacteria in any community. They're all interacting. And now we realize as we've, we're turning those computer-based tools onto more and more human samples, the blood yes tissue types, the bladder, the lung, the pancreas, you name it, they're not sterile. They all harbor, interestingly, these organisms, most of human tissue and blood is not sterile and have these interacting communities of organisms. Now, within those, it's interesting that what I call the dominant pathogens, the Epstein-Barr's, the enteroviruses, they're members of those communities to a large degree. And, And what can happen is that under conditions of inflammation and imbalance, most organisms in human microbiome communities, they're, they're like the major viruses. The immune system keeps them in check in a commensal state, in a state of homeostasis, 
when people are healthy, but if the immune system gets thrown off, they can collectively move towards a state of virulence. And part of what they do Mm. when they collectively move, whether it's in the gut or in a different body site, is they express new proteins and metabolites. And those proteins and metabolites are often similar in size and shape to human proteins, human structures, or human receptors. And antibodies are notoriously polyspecific. They're flexible in the way they respond. Mm. So one of the biggest concepts in the autoimmune community now that also, you know, considers organism is molecular mimicry, which is that the immune system may fire on a viral protein, on a gut pathobiome protein. And then that has a similar enough size and shape to a human receptor, human structure, and it hits that as as a, a collateral damage. So Mm. one of the things that we're trying to do is we're working with a team in the background to create with, for example, the the beta adrenergic autoantibodies that that these things find in Mm. MECFS. There's just proof of concept studies showing that real virus creates proteins that are similar in size and shape to those receptors. Trip is the parasites do. So we're working to create, and this is a long-term project and some other teams are doing this as well databases that better show the mimics between some of these so-called mm. autoantibodies and all these organism protein and metabolite, because it really matters because what you deem an autoantibody may actually be targeted against organism. And what it's really important, one of the papers I wrote this past year, again, with my colleague, Mike Van Elzeker, who's a neuroscientist, I think it's probably one of the most important concepts for MECFS in many chronic conditions is that Viruses and most pathogens are obligate intracellular pathogens. And what that means is by definition, they must infect pool from the host cell mitochondria from the cells that they infect for their replication and nutritional needs. Wait, say that one more time. So they infect in in the cell. I want to make this clear for listeners too and for myself. They infect in the cells. They do in fact get in the mitochondria because that's always been like a you know, this whole thing about mitochondrial dysfunction in MECSF. Right. So they'll infect the nucleus or center of the cell and they have access to the mitochondria. And what they do is okay. they pull from glycolysis and the TCA cycle, these cycles that our mitochondria grow through to produce energy for us. Yes. They pull right. and hide, they hijack the mitochondria directly to pull substrates out of that nucleotides, lipids for their own replication. Mm-hmm. All viruses do this. SARS-CoV-2 does it every single one. Mm. And by definition, then the metabolic output of that infected cell is different. And that's one of the most important concepts mm. in it's called immunometabolism field right now. It's interesting. Cause I had not really, again, I heard very superficially from, you know, from Jacob's work, Dr. Teitelbaum and Dr. Myhill. they all, you know, just as clinicians, we don't really have good tests. So that's why Again, doctors don't like that stuff. If they don't have a test for something, they, yeah. you know, they don't want to just, you know, throw out and say, oh, you have mitochondrial dysfunction. Although I've learned from Dr. Tylebam and Dr. Myhill that trying to replenish some of the substrates that are maybe yeah. diminished or that need augmentation could clinically help a patient. That's why I recommend certain supplements yeah. like D-ribose and CoQ10 and acetyl-L-carnitine as boosters for the mitochondria. And patients yeah, no, you know, feel better. Exactly. You can try to sort of replenish what the pathogens may yeah. be pulling from you, hijacking from you. But at the same time, what's really important mm-hmm. is, is for the field and even for treatment to consider that these topics are not separate. The infections impact the metabolic output. Mm. Okay. That's re- that's yeah. critical. That is critical. Yeah. I want to, I think that might be one of the most important things that we're bringing it's out just, today. It's a new because yeah. You sound like because doctors tend to think, well, if you have a reactivated infection, you should be having fevers. You should, 
you know, show this should be some demonstrable thing in a lesion. But what you're saying, and I think I find that fascinating, and it's what a lot of these, you know, top clinicians have been seeing for years is that no, no, this there's something happening in the metabolism. You could just have a metabolic problem, exactly, from an infection. Sure, and you yeah. will feel and sick. So, exactly. Yeah, you'll feel sick and right. horrible. And, and now, yeah. just again, help that mitochondria are also known to function as part of the innate immune response. So they actually fight back against this hijacking by creating their own compounds. So there's this ongoing war between pathogen hijacking and mitochondria and mitochondria functioning as innate wow. immune organelles to fight back. And that that's really a topic mm. where as we research that, there should be clinical application to that where we're going to better figure out how we can either take advantage mm. to strengthen the mitochondrial pushback on the pathogen or mm. prevent the pathogen from being able to hijack that should be able to hopefully kind of. And anything you could throw out that you, that you think would help a patient right now, you know, someone like who was in your situation years ago that whether it's a supplement or something, even a medication that would be beneficial. I mean, cause it almost like sounds like this is the question I was going to ask you originally, like, are people, because it doesn't seem like they get a huge response to things like Valtrex or gangcyclovir. These are mm-hmm. antivirals. Sometimes they help, sometimes they don't, because essentially they're trying to decrease mm-hmm. the viral load. But on the other hand, what is it that could boost either the metabolic or the immune component that might give these patients symptomatic relief so they could function better? Yeah. You know, I don't know enough. I know some people are using metformin, which is an interesting modulator. Mm, it can even impact yeah. gut microbiome composition. If they're seeing, right. you know, metformin has activity beyond its original scope. I mm, do also know that there's a doctor today giving a talk about oxaloacetate, I think as a, and it's an impact um, in mm-hmm. MECFS. And I do know, you know, you kind of have the, some of the substrates that can sort of feed into the mitochondrial cycle, some of the liposomal forms, mm. but some of those substrates that I think some people use. Okay. Mm. I, I use my own practice. I do IV vitamin therapy. You know, as I said, I mentioned, I do gamma globulin. If I think somebody mm-hmm. has got an infectious thing, it's amazing that I think it's an underutilized, I know it's, a, it's mm-hmm. hard to get, Yeah. but, but again, going back to your whole thing, I find patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, possibly even sometimes like chronic Lyme that like, as you were saying earlier, it's not so much the active bacteria or viruses proliferating, it's maybe they're somehow irritating the immune system, which is then sending off chemicals that are making them feel sick, you know, Absolutely. so, and the gamma seems yeah. to lower their inflammation, but it actually keeps their immune system strong. So yeah. I wanted to move on to COVID a little bit. And then obviously there's gonna be an overlap with what we just talked about with MECSF. And really the first question I want to ask you, I started to just mention, this was pretty fascinating. I was, I was getting ready for this podcast with you, which I was really excited to do. And it's been awesome so far, but that, you know, a paper came out that uh, this, I thought was a, a jaw dropping long haul COVID symptoms were, were in COVID-19 that paper by Jeffrey Gold and David Hurley. And they were looking at EBV reactivation of these patients. Mm-hmm. And their statistic was 73% of these long haul COVID patients had evidence of EB reactivation, I think in the first three months. Yeah. No, that doesn't surprise me. 
doesn't surprise you. No, because, you know, I mentioned before the interferons, those antiviral cytokines. Mm-hmm. Well, the SARS-CoV-2 virus expresses at least 10 proteins that knock down interferon signaling. It's one of the major ways that SARS-CoV-2 survives and does what it does. Mm-hmm. It knocks down, it allows the SARS-CoV-2 survives better because it mutes that the response of these antiviral cytokines and it can proliferate more, but those are also what keep the herpes viruses in latency. So, uh, so these cytokines, these are, yeah, just yeah. So for our listeners to know, I mean, you know, cytokines, I guess maybe the best description are they're cell hormones. I mean, people, patients yeah. understand thyroid makes thyroid hormone, you know, adrenal mm-hmm. glands make adrenal hormones. Well, certain immune cells yeah. make cytokines, which are really important. It's a little bit underappreciated even by clinicians because we sometimes have difficulty measuring them. I'm doing a lot more of that in my office, but it's essentially immune cell hormones, right? And and you know what's interesting too? I read something that children, this was really before the Delta virus, they tend to have higher interferon gamma levels. So I was hearing that's why they were thought to be less prone to illness than adults. It's an interesting theory because yes, you know, a lot of times when we hear cytokine, we think of something negative, and that is the case. It can be because it's, if a cytokine response becomes too much, right. it's very, it causes a lot of inflammation that can cause a lot of symptoms, but mm-hmm. they're also very important. They have their normal functional role, which mm-hmm. is their sort of like attack molecules, and they go after many of the pathogens, even SARS-CoV-2. And so by sort of blunting this cytokine from being able to go after it, right? It's kind of like a battle move. SARS-CoV-2 inhibits the cytokine that would otherwise kill it. You know, there's always an arms race with these things between yeah, pathogens yeah. and the immune system that that just really provides an atmosphere for the herpes virus to say, wow, we're no longer being regulated by these same interferons. Let's mm. act up. Let's infect a new tissue. Let's infect a new nerve. Let's, you know, create more protein. Do you think also, and I think I've told this in some of your papers, what I talk a lot with my patients, because I find there's a lot of, like the whole functional medicine community, there's a lot of microbiome dysfunction. That's why a lot of people get ill. I see a lot of people, what I call candida hypersensitivity, where they're getting thrush in in their mouth, or the women are getting vaginitis, and, and there's other areas. But you know, the microbiome we tend to associate with bacteria, I guess also probably fungi, and you mentioned, I think, in one of your papers I was reading, like with the virus, I think, I don't know, it's called the biome or something. <laughs> but do you think from your work that some people who have maybe a more diverse and stronger microbiome are more resistant to infections in general? Yes. You do. So one of the things that I've done with my papers and some of my research is I always try to integrate the microbiome, these, you know, really robust and extensive communities of organisms in our tissue and blood into along with the activity of the major pathogens like Epstein-Barr because their activity is totally interrelated. So yes, you know, what we, what healthy people usually have. So let's say I'm I'm an Olympic athlete. I'm seated with, with organism and I'm functioning very well. That's usually because the organism, the immune system is in good shape it's preventing organism in those communities from being able to, to change their gene expression. They, they're capable of acting more problematic, yeah. but the immune system goes, no, 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 no. Keeps them kind of like mm. a teacher in a classroom. The kids in the classroom, if the teacher's there, pretend the teacher is the immune system. If right. the teacher's there, the kids are all behaving. Uh, they're, they're behaving. They're, 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 yeah. not jumping sure. out the window. <laughs> exactly. If the teacher leaves the room though, those uh, same kids that's good analogy. Can, total, can act up and cause a lot of problems. That's the way it is with these microbiome communities is 
when the immune system is not in great shape, they can change, they can kind of collectively move towards a state called dysbiosis a lot where they become pro-inflammatory, they become their imbalance. That, that's a great analogy. I have to use that with my patients, you know, because it did, it fascinated me. You know, I'm a huge tennis fan. So I heard you play, I played tennis in college. Sounds like you played. Yeah. And I love the sport. I feel so yeah. bad for Roger Federer, but yeah. I was fascinated when Novak Djokovic came down with COVID mm-hmm. and again, clearly an elite athlete. Right. Fortunately got through it quite well because a few weeks later after quarantine, he was back on the tour playing. And, you know, you see all these other people that are having a lot of varied responses. So you say to yourself, so interesting, because again, this is a virus, you know, should it discriminate between an elite athlete and like a regular person? I mean, because again, we're just talking about biology, Mm -hmm. but clearly it seems that it does because these elite athletes must have a really good microbiome and immune system. It can be one of the factors. And we wrote a paper on lung COVID as well. It was recently published and different biological abnormalities that may contribute. And there's a big microbiome section. And the reason for that is, for example, we know that I'm just going to give an example, the vaginal microbiome. When the vaginal microbiome is more diverse, when it's in good shape, when it's more balanced, it's actually, they've studied it in HIV. Women who have a more balanced vaginal microbiome, even when they're exposed to HIV, are less likely to get the virus. And that's Mm. because there's a number of reasons. There's, you know, the organisms take up more niche space. It's harder for the virus right. to find a place to be. Some of the no yeah. seat in the classroom. Okay. Right. Yeah. Take and that analogy further. Other organisms, you know, secrete, I think it's like lactic acid or other compounds that make it more difficult for the virus to stick around. So those organisms, they're all creating, and that's the thing, they're creating compounds, they create, you know, neurotransmitter, they create protein, metabolite. That can actually, if it's in a good a state, sort of push back against the viral invasion. There's no space for it. There's no place for it. The other organisms almost like don't want to let it in in simple terms. The same with the lung microbiome, which is really important for COVID is Mm. there are studies that have shown they, for example, one team infected mice with respiratory synchrovirus, or I think it was, and they showed that, you know, the, the mice, first of all, after getting the virus, the lung microbiome composition totally changes, but also the mice with more robust microbiome to begin with, you know, can better fight back against virus. So in other words, microbiome to me, you name it, whether it's in the lung, in the mouth, in the gut, in the bladder, anywhere, it's sort of a, it's a predisposition. If it's robust, it's harder for the major viruses to really take hold and infect that same body site. Is there a way to improve that? Or that's still the mystery in medicine? Because I know people take probiotics. Yeah. I don't know. I, I tell them, I said, I think we're still, I, I call it the wild west or, you know, we're, we're state of infancy because we don't know. Cause obviously each area of the body could require a different kind of microbiome. So I don't think it's harmful, but I can say this is going to be a game changer. I do think that right now we can address gut and small intestine dysbiosis the most. And there actually are some good protocols out there. I think, you know, for SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, mm-hmm. there's a, a doctor, David Kaufman, and he reports that I think a good percentage of his MECFS patients have SIBO. And there's good protocols for that now. They usually center on, you use an antibiotic or sometimes a strong herbal antimicrobial yeah. sort of try to kill off organism there. And then- right you repopulate with, yes, probiotic or fermented food or other stuff like that. 
there's a couple different, especially for SIBO protocol, that does seem to help patients improve a little bit. And I do think that can matter in these cases because even if that's just part of your case, yes, right. The immune system, let's say the gut or the intestine and SIBO is is dysbiotic and all the organism is out of balance. The immune system gets so caught up in that mess. It's like, oh, what's going on? Yeah, no, it's, it's huge. Organ- you know, I'll just, yeah. I'll just have to add one thing. And you know what I found, because I've taken care of many patients with SIBO, but mm-hmm. what I have found, and I, I tell my patients this, I, I feel I've been a little more successful by treating what I call the candida overgrowth. I think the candida growth is somehow involved with the SIBO, believe it or not. And I find that when patients going to antibiotics, they feel better, but they relapse and then they relapse. And when I treat the underlying candida imbalance, because again, they have a lot of times they have symptoms, either thrush or, or mm-hmm. bloating, dysbiosis or toenail fungus, mm-hmm. that they get more permanently better. That's just been my yeah. clinical experience. I want to ask you one thing too, going back to, again, some of the things with the anti-inflammatory treatments. Again, I don't know if it's come across in your research, things like low-dose naltrexone, which uh, Jared Younger, mm-hmm. I think, you know, promotes a lot. I think he's in Alabama now. I think he used to be at Stanford. Mm -hmm. Do you see a place for that in this? I mean, have you? Yeah, I don't. And, you know, I think Jared is looking at low-dose naltrexone as a potential glial inhibitor. And I think we need a little bit more evidence for that. First, we do need a little bit more evidence that glia are are activated in MECFS because there's one Mm. small, for example, my colleague, again, Mike Van Alzegar, he's running a a large PET study now, which is, that's the goal is to really try to document neuroinflammation, whether or not the microglia are activated in in the brains of these patients. Mm. But other than that, we're relying on a, I think, Japanese study that's small. There's, I think, nine subjects or something like that. They did find glial activation in MECFS, but we do need some replication there. But assuming that glia are active, and we, assuming we further studied low-dose naltrexone as a glial inhibitor because we need more data on that, then that could be interesting. That Beyond that, though, I've always been interested in the low-dose naltrexone mechanisms that it must impact the immune system. I mm-hmm. wish, I know that there are doctors who used, I'm going to call it LDN, low-dose naltrexone, LDN for short. They used LDN in patients with HIV. AIDS and cancer, and which are conditions, you know, HIV AIDS is it helped with comorbid infection. It helped mm. fungal, it helped contain fungal comorbidity. And so I know there's a lot of people. There was one group at Harvard, for example, that was looking to see if it had an effect on T cell function. There's a lot of hypotheses out there as to what LDN does, and even the sort of, you know, original mechanism where it seems to infect endorphin signaling. Well, endorphins are also tied to immunity in some sense. So I Mm. do also think there's an immune component to LDN that where it's probably an immune modulator that may actually better help people contain infection. And I'm not sure, but I really hope it's studied more in that capacity because I know doctors who use it Mm. more for its potential effects on controlling infection than necessarily on even glial inhibition. However, if it did both, it'd be very interesting. <laughs> so, yeah. I want to just go back to one last thing too, as we're kind of wrapping up, because mm-hmm. it's been tremendous. You know, the whole idea with the antivirals, as I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, the valcyclovirs, which I know Valtrex has been used for Epstein-Barr. Mm-hmm. It's used sometimes even in shingles when people get an acute reactivation of shingles. Even now, they're, the remdesivir is being tried. I, I know, again, I'm hearing positive and negative response. I guess all of it has to do with timing. Do you believe though with viral infections, the antivirals, I mean, obviously we've seen HIV, it's amazing. Do you think they could have a really good place? Like maybe even in COVID, like I I keep on thinking like the same way it took David Ho, a brilliant guy to come up and say, you know what, we need triple antiviral cocktail to knock this thing out. Do you think that something like that could potentially? Yes. I I think that the 
best thing that we could do for many a chronic condition because right, right, people are being infected already is yeah. to develop better antivirals we we have valtrex we have outside they're okay they're not even perfect many of them are not even targeted to epstein-barr virus where we're hoping i mean they're they mm. ish but they're if it were up to me and i ran the national institutes of health the first thing i would do would be to create a program as big as what we've done for the mRNA vaccines, as big as anything that just fast tracks research on new antivirals. There are so many new mechanisms. There are so many new potential. Right. Because those those drugs are old, you know, in a sense. Yes. And when you look at HIV, I mean, I'm not I'm not really an expert in that anymore, but that, you know, all of those uh, protease inhibitors and this, that too, they clearly worked. I mean, these yes. people are living full lives, you know, with now yes. just a chronic condition. And bringing the viral tires that, you know, they measure this stuff now, they're basically down to nothing that, you know, if we had weapons for COVID, which is going to be critical, I mean, this is going to be the new epidemic of our lifetime. And you know, yeah. people just don't realize, I mean, whether it was like polio or other things, these, it could be decades, people could have some degree of suffering. But if we get before it gets to a pathological state where it changes tissue and everything, this could be the window to do that. I couldn't agree more. I actually, every time I see an antiviral even suggested for COVID, I get excited. One doctor presented at a conference today that they thought that MECFS patients who also had enterovirus infection might have responded to remdesivir even for the enterovirus. It's another RNA virus. Wow. Again, wow. there's these real, a huge potential for the development of new and better antivirals. And if we were to do that, I think we could really make a dent in these cases. And as you say, if we use them in the most preventative fashion possible before things get too bad, before, like there's huge promise in that. So I agree. I'm with you. I hope that happens. Yeah. I'll tell you the one last thing too, because I, again, I always think about these things. You know, as horrible as it was when I was doing training during the HIV AIDS crisis, I kept thinking to myself, something good will probably come out of this. We're doctors and researchers, we're discovering things about the immune system that we would never would have known or it would have taken decades more. And I think the same thing is going to happen with COVID and especially regarding chronic fatigue, myoencephalitis, myalgic encephalitis, that this condition, this virus may uncover things about the immune system that would have, could have been hidden for uh, a century. So I agree. It's exciting. We're studying a virus with more teams are studying a virus than has ever occurred before. And so we exactly we may learn from this virus. We can extrapolate to maybe other RNA viruses. We can so yes, it's good. Mm, yeah. Well, Dr. Amy Pearl, I want to thank you so much for taking the time today. I am so glad you're on this, you know, because I, I feel I'll sleep a little better at night realizing you and other researchers are really diving into this and appreciate your time. And I hope we get to chat again. For sure. Of course. Thanks, Same. Amy. Okay. Right. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com. 